Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast that celebrates today's historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of nine, soon to be ten, historical novels for adults and teens. Join me and my guest for the next half hour while we talk historical fiction. Writing it, reading it, publishing it, and more with tips about process, pet peeves, and preferences. So I'm here today with Mitchell James Kaplan, who's a wonderful author who's written three books now. I have three published novels. And his latest one, Rhapsody, is a story about Kay Swift, who was the longtime lover, collaborator, whatever, of George Gershwin. And it's a really gorgeous book. And I'm so happy to have Mitchell here. And I can't wait to talk to him about it. Thank you, Suzanne. Yeah. You're a musician. I'm a musician. I could tell that a musician wrote this book. (laughs) I could really tell. And so I want you to maybe talk a little bit about how you approached that whole musical side of things. Yeah, that's a, that is a wonderful question because part of my motivation to write the book was about music. I start, when I start writing or even thinking about writing a book, there are a lot of questions in my mind about the characters, the setting. And in this case, when I knew I was writing about a woman who was not only a brilliant musician, but who had the ambition of being a a composer, I, and also George Gershwin, of course, being a major character in the novel, that those questions about music, the nature of music, what is music? What is music for? How does this particular kind of music work? Where does it fit in terms of the history of music, in terms of the culture? Those questions were important to me. And I wanted, really a novel for me is a search. When I'm writing a novel, I'm looking for something. I'm getting to know the characters and their world and what bothers them and why it bothers them. and these questions are a big part of that. So it was my own personal search, but I think also it reflects probably what most musicians feel or musicians in the world of K-Swift and George Gershwin might've felt. For example, when you're talking about the early days of jazz, even before it was called jazz, when you're talking about this coalescing of musical currents, ragtime, blues, klezmer music, Irish music, folk music, all these different currents coming together into something that people were thinking of as an American idiom, as a new American idiom. It, it just, it, the question that I think jumps out is what, is, what are the particular features of this idiom? What purpose does it serve culturally? And how is it different from the other musical strains of the time. Is that an answer, partially? Yes, no, it is, it's a great answer. Yeah, thank you. And I was very aware of that as I was reading and especially the things that Gershwin himself says and his approach. And that sort of leads me to another thing, which is, I know this is a novel about Kay Swift, more from her point of view, but I felt so much that it was Kay Swift's view into George Gershwin that it, that it was about. Can you talk exactly, a little bit about that? That is exactly right. And I have to tell you that some people who don't like the book don't like it for that reason. 
and hmm. they have every they have every right not to like it and they have every right to feel it should have been a different book but this is the book i wrote and but one negative review and i guess i need to say defensively that most of the reviews are are favorable even very favorable but there are some people who don't like it and for those of you who are aspiring novelists steal yourself because that happens <laughs> but i'd say maybe the majority of those people seem to feel that i should have written a biography of case with and that isn't exactly what i wrote i wrote about case swift in her relationship with these two men mm-hmm. james warburg and george gershwin which i find to be a compelling interesting love triangle unusual we're talking about brilliant gifted ambitious people all around and even people who had in their own different ways lofty ideas about about themselves and about their relationships to each other and how those things should work ideas that didn't mesh perfectly with each other's ideas but and especially about how music fit into that picture but yes i came to it <clears throat> I, i the starting point as i've mentioned in some other interviews the starting point was a couple years after my father died i'm sitting at my early morning table which you could call my breakfast table but it's pre-dawn and I have a cup of coffee in front of me and my CD player is on and it's set to shuffle so I've got 300 CDs in there and Rhapsody Blue comes on and I just I had not been able to attend my father's funeral I was in a different part of the world when he died but I had seen him just days before he died and he had hugged me and he was Alzheimer's advanced Alzheimer's he had hugged me and while hugging me he had, and it was the most eerie and moving thing i've ever experienced and he was a musician his whole life he identified as a jazz clarinetist even though he was a cardiologist as professor at UCLA in the medical school but he his identity was jazz clarinetist and he played on weekends he played in evenings he played in clubs he played at home he played along with records and this rapsin blue comes on and I'm sipping my coffee and I start crying. And yeah, that opening which I call a klezmer wipe or whatever I call the klezmer yeah. glissando, it's this clarinet scale that all it's a slide up this couple of octaves or a few mm-hmm. octaves. And my father used to play it. He would be sitting in the living room when I was a little boy with the stereo on and the record on the turntable and he'd play along with it. which is something for a little boy to witness. Yeah. It looks like I'm moving you and yeah. And that <laughs> and that's <laughs> And that's what happened to me. That's what happened to me. And I knew that was going to be the centerpiece of my next novel. And I've actually described that moment to you better and more movingly than I've ever described it to anybody else, more completely really to you just now. Yes, that was the spotlight was on Gershwin. and it was through my father's spirit that it was directed to Gershwin and i started reading biographies of Gershwin and then i happened upon this love of his life with that was such a complex multi multi-pronged you might say relationship and the characters are just all so interesting and and i just felt case swift was the point of entry much as in my first novel 
by fire, by water. I first, that novel, which has to do with the Spanish Inquisition and the discovery of America, it actually came about when I learned that, that there was this one person on Columbus's ships whom he identified as his Jew, who was his translator. The job was, because Columbus thought he was going to go someplace and that they'd have, they'd be able to speak. Hebrew is a common mother tongue of all languages and in that worldview of that period. And uh, it's false, but that's what Columbus thought. And so he had this Jewish converso, whose name was Luis de Torres, but prior to that, he lived in Moorish southern Spain. And so I was fascinated that there was this Jew on these boats after the Jews were just had just been expelled from Spain. And I started reading about it, and then I found out, wow, there was this guy who financed the trip, who had been involved, possibly was accused of being involved with the murder of the chief inquisitor of Aragon. I thought, and I ended up making him my point of entry, Luis de Santangel. And he becomes the protagonist, if you will, of By a Fire by Water. It's the same thing with K. Swift and Gershwin. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I guess I find that the person whose point of view is most interesting may not be the person whom the spotlight is pointing at. And my second novel has multiple protagonists and it's more complicated and it's not like that exactly. But yeah, those two of the three novels evolved in that way. Yeah. Another long, complicated answer. Yeah, no, it's good. But still at the same time, as you say, Kay Swift is this very complex, interesting yeah. individual. You yeah. really get a sense of her as a human being as well and all the complexities and all the things that all the missteps, all the things that go wrong, all the things that go right, and her relationship with George Gershwin. I think I identified with Kay most strongly, actually. And some people say, oh, a man can't write for a woman. In any case, that wasn't my feeling. And what I identified with about Kay is just that her, it feels to me like, especially professionally, her ambition and the stumbling box and the kinds of challenges that she faced and her desire her desire to go about this in a certain way is very much similar to the way I think about my own professional ambitions as a writer and very mm-hmm. different from those of a George Gershwin mm-hmm. or from those of Kay's husband and lyricist James Warburg. Yeah. They had very different attitudes about what they were doing. Jimmy Warburg <clears throat> is was writing these lyrics almost, it's partially, I think, unconsciously or consciously a way to help save his marriage. And mm-hmm. on, another, on another level, <clears throat> it's him learning to loosen up and just have fun with words. Mm-hmm. And George Gershwin hardly needs to be told to loosen up because he's all over the place. He's like this self, this autodidactic genius, and he's all over the keyboard. And, and Kay's this very disciplined person who comes to this, comes to jazz and comes to this writing from a disciplined classical background. And again, in terms of my identification with Kay, I come to write novels that I like to think of as being very accessible and readable from a background as, a, as an English literature major who focused on British poetry, going back to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and Beowulf up through Shakespeare and Milton and well, going back Chaucer and going forward to Keats, all of whom I regard as just unparalleled greatness, inimitable greatness. And 
I don't come to it, although I love I love popular literature. I love Dickens and I love Balzac and so forth. But that's not. Let me just started. stop you for a minute. Yeah. A modern reader might not think of that as popular literature. <laughs> yeah, but uh, they were certainly it was yeah uh, in their time, and for that matter, you might talk about the great writers of the pot boilers during that period. There's some great writers in there, but they were writing popular literature. Um, and I mean, when I mean Papa's mystery detective stories, kind of formulaic. And when I Papa's mystery detective stories, kind of formulaic with the femme fatale and with murders. And but great stylists, great spare writing, uh, great story construction. So I don't know really if I'm making it. I'm not really making any kind of cogent statement here about my aesthetic purpose. But I just feel like K-Swift came from one place and ended up somewhere else. And I feel the same way. I initially wanted to be a poet. That was my ambition. And I, I have a being... brother who's a poet. I have a brother who's a poet. Mm -hmm. I could not write poetry to save my life. I don't. I write poetry. I love poetry. But it's for me, I never even, I have never even tried to get one poem published. I haven't sent a poem anywhere ever. I've put some of them on Facebook because they, I, I want them I want to communicate something with the poems that I can't communicate in a novel. Yeah. Which is just, but, but I just don't think of them as commodities, whereas I do think of a novel as a commodity. Yeah, unfortunately, we're forced to do that these days. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. And, and I'm awfully glad that you produced this novel because it is really lovely. And there's a lot of stuff that sticks with me and that, I'm, that I think about. And one interesting thing, actually, for me, one of the most fascinating passages, places in it was the whole, everything that happened around Porgy and Bess. Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, I, I used to be, I used to be an executive in a, in a regional opera company. And our artistic director was this amazing black man who, Willie Anthony Waters, who was just lovely. Every year or so we'd come, we'd think about doing Porgy and Bess. And there was always something problematic about it, and we never managed to do it. So can you talk a little bit about the whole genesis of that and, and how you dug into Gershwin's feelings about it? Well, I will say that I spoke with a friend of mine who was a director of an opera company and a major opera company, just a guy I went to college with and who ended up being a director of an opera company. And I talked to him about, and he said that in his experience, this question, the question that has haunted Porgy and Bess, the basic question today, that is one of the problems that people encounter is this question of, was it right for a white person to write an all black opera where the entire cast is black, where the music is very much influenced by black music, jazz, the blues. And my friend who is a director of the opera company and who really knows opera singers and knows and knows opera, great depth as you surely do, said to me that among black opera singers, it is a beloved work. It, the, the, the resistance to it is not coming from them. That's what he told me. And I, I was reassured to hear that. But going back several steps from there, the problems Gershwin had were not those problems problems, the initial problem he had was that he wanted to be the first, he called it a folk opera. I think you might call it, there are a lot of ways you could describe the music. It does have 
like everything G George Gershwin wrote, it has influences of a lot of different kinds of music. But he thought of it as an opera for sure. And he wanted it to be to produce at the Metropolitan Opera and they would not allow black singers on their stage, period. That was the policy. And, uh, and Gershwin at that point had the choice, do we make it an opera about black people performed by white people in blackface, okay. which is what the Metropolitan Opera proposed, or, or do we do it in a way that is going to be less satisfying for George Gershwin in terms of his personal vision? and just perform it elsewhere. And don't give it that grand stage, the big orchestra, the big concert hall, all the big sets and the funding that goes along with an opera production. And he opted for the latter. So they produced it in a Broadway theater. And I think that came about because George Gershwin's first major hit in 1919 was a song called Swanee performed by Al Jolson in blackface. Mm -hmm. And uh, George Gershwin was friends with a lot of black musicians, very close friends. And he had studied with black musicians way before any other white people were studying with black musicians. He had zero, in my opinion, from everything I can see, absolutely zero racism in him. You could deduct other things if you read things that he, that if you listen to some of his radio broadcasts or whatever, you might think otherwise, but you have to put everything in the context of how people spoke in those days. And in my opinion, I know for a fact he had nothing but respect. He and Fats Waller were great friends. Mm -hmm. And George Gershwin helped boost the career of people like Fats Waller. And in fact, Fats Waller ended up studying with one of George Gershwin's teachers, and it influenced Fats Waller's style. And he wrote some of his later pieces were in a style that sounds a lot like George Gershwin, but they were influencing each other big yeah. time, not just Fats Waller, of course. So I think that, I think George Gershwin felt very bad when he found out that people were offended by the fact that Al Jolson had performed Swanee in Blackface. And when he heard from these black musicians that they're not offended that a white person is writing music in this idiom necessarily, but they are offended that they can't go and perform this music on these same stages like Carnegie Hall and a white person can. And I think he took that very much to heart from everything I can see. That was, a, he was very moved and touched and he refused to allow organ and best to be performed in blackface and he put it in his will. It is yeah. only ever to be performed by an all black cast. cast. I know that was just amazing, really. What's so funny because there was a point around then, I don't even remember where, about where you mentioned Ziegfeld, and I can't remember what the context was, but I had, I have a man, an unpublished manuscript about Lillian Lorraine, who was his great sort of passion um, that he never actually married, but he was the first person to persuade producers on Broadway to allow a black person to perform in one of his follies. And yeah. <laughs> and did you know that Benny Goodwin is the first jazz combo, white jazz combo to have a black musician as a member? No, I did not know that. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there were people on both, whatever, both sides of the, of the color barrier, if you want, if there is such a barrier, mm. I hope there isn't, but who were militating 
for this. And a lot of jazz musicians who respect him and admired and worked with musicians of different skin tones felt very strongly about this issue. And of course, the white people were going up to Harlem to the yes. music halls there. And, and listening and sitting yeah. in the audience. Yeah, it was at, at the Cotton Club, you had the exact opposite situation from the Metropolitan Opera, mm-hmm. where black people could be on stage, but couldn't be in the audience. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's bizarre, but it, it is fascinating. It is a, a theme, this whole idea of what makes American music, what are the influences, and how it really became this quote-unquote melting pot, and yet not at the same time, because there was so much, it was also loaded with implications, with whatever, with prejudice and all that sort of thing. But Yeah, and it still is, and I don't know that perfect solutions are ever going to be found or that we will ever become the the nation that we hope to be. I don't know. But I think people were very much working toward that in the 20s, some people, and people are working toward that today. That's That's where we're trying to go as a whole, as a whole culture, I believe. And I do think in that period, it was very much at the top of people's agenda that America should be a melting pot, should be a place where different cultures influence each other and create something great together. Uh, Make America great again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) In a different way. In a different way. (laughs) But anyway, I've been asking you the questions that arose for me. Is there anything you want to talk about that has to do with this book that I haven't thought of asking you? I would have to give that some thoughts, Suzanne. I don't, off the top of my head, what do I want to talk about? I guess I would ask you, I've been intrigued by some of the comments I've read about the book, some, or that I've heard from people who've read the book. Some people, have, a lot of people have told me, and I really was surprised, that their favorite ca- character was Jimmy Warburg. Yeah, that can happen, but yeah. so I, I liked him, but no, Kay was yeah. my favorite character, along yeah, with I mean, George. Yeah. I think all, all, I found all the characters to have flaws and to have qualities that I appreciated. And I love characters like that. That's the kind of character I like writing. Some people don't want that. Some people want characters who are pure nobility or pure grace or pure whatever. And I'm afraid I'm not able to give those people what they Mm. want. Suzanne, you know as well as I do, it's very frustrating when you're creating uh, a work that reflects your ideas about what a novel should be and then it goes out there in the world and it meets up with people who have very different ideas about what a novel should be yeah and but you know that's that is the thing despite what the publishing industry tries to tell us that everybody wants the same basic kind of book and that's what they're going to put out often uh, not always but different strokes and different people like different things and also i like lots of different things. I've read historical romances that were fabulous. And mm-hmm. I just, but I, on the other hand, I just finished reading Whereabouts by Jhumpa Lahiri. Have you mm-hmm. heard about I that? I haven't read it, but of course I've heard about it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what Another... a book. And it's, and it's, I even wrote a blog post about it because I'm like, if one of my clients came to me and said, but I want to write like that, I'd have to say to them, you can't. Only one person can write like that. And she breaks all of the sort of rules of storytelling, but there's no character arc. 
There's no, wow. it's incredible. You have to read it because yeah. it's short. I, I like gulped it down okay. a couple of nights. So I, I think it'll be my yeah. next book. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll yeah. have to ignore several in between books. <laughs> That's the problem. I would have gotten to this much sooner if I didn't have a lot of other things that I had to do and whatever. No, no, but, I wasn't. I don't keep tabs on those things. I'm not aware of who has read my book and who hasn't, but people who read it and like it, I'm deeply appreciative including of you and the fact that I love the fact that you seem to like the book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, no, I, I thought it was fabulous. I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in that time period or just who loves a good historical novel. Yeah, I think I can't really think of anything else that I wanted to know. Oh, oh except for one thing, maybe. Have you got anything coming along next? Yes, but actually, let me backtrack because I did think, and you might have to edit this a little to make it fit That's together. That's okay or not. But I did think of something else I'd like to say about the book, which is that I, in all my novels, I have tried to, and I am trying to bring in a big sense of the world that these characters are moving in and dwelling in and growing in. And I like to think of that as a trademark of my work, that I really like to write novels that don't focus narrowly on, for example, perhaps marital problems or domestic issues or things like that. Not that those are irrelevant, they're very relevant to people's stories. But I believe person is a part of a fabric of a, of a culture and a society. And I love to evoke as much of that and bring a, as much of that into story as possible. And again, some people don't like that. Some people maybe feel I provide too much detail and what I would like to call narrative richness, perhaps. But that's really, so I want to bring in, in addition to the characters and their issues, I want to bring in a sense of the history of what's going on in the culture, of what things look like, of what the architecture looks like, of what, how, how, what wristwatches look like, et cetera. And that's the other point I wanted to make about this book and my other books. As far as the new book, the book I'm working on right now, it's set in 1967 and 2019, just before COVID. So it's a book really that's asking, it's looking at the aspirations of the baby boomer generation when the baby boomer, boomer generation was, was young and idealistic. And then it's looking at the world today and asking questions about whether this is anything like what was envisaged and if not, what went wrong? But through, obviously through specific characters and their experiences. Eagerly await it and read it as I have read. I read Thank two you. of your books. I think one of them I haven't read yet, but yeah. You're, you're, you're excused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I just want to thank you. And I will put links into the, into the notes for this, where people okay. can get this book. And, and, I'll, and obviously I'll, I'll tweet them and so forth. Yeah. yeah. And it's, is there any place in specific people can find you? Do you have a website or are you? Yeah, sure. Media links? Yeah. www.mitchelljameskaplan.com. Certainly they though. can. Yeah, they can uh, go there and find out about my books and uh, how they've been received. And they can contact me through that portal and they can also find some articles I've written. So if that's of any interest to people, otherwise I'm on Facebook and Twitter. And yeah. 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 Well, struggling I, with Instagram, but yeah, it took me a while to get to Instagram too, but I'm learning. <laughs> 
But yeah, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been a fabulous conversation. Thank I you. really have enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Anyway, Suzanne, uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google. Visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time.